Welcome to Into the Wardrobe, a feature of the totally pretentious podcast in which we explore classic children's film. I'm Jen. And I'm Sean. And we are here because... Why are we here, Sean? Well, this is a new feature, Jen. A new feature? It's new and it's special. Why is it special? Well, uh, as we talked about when we came up with this idea, oh, I, like a month or more ago? I can't remember exactly yeah, when we had the conversation. While. It's been a while. Uh, well, A, we don't get to podcast together as much as we used to in the olden times. That's true. But it makes me very sad inside. Because <laughs> I miss you so much. I miss you too. Love you. I love you too. <laughs> um, we don't get to podcast very much. And, well, I knew a, while, a long time ago you had tried to do a young adult literature podcast with your kids. I did, and then they were kids. So. Well, they're kids. Fair enough. Uh, exactly. And, and it made me think, well, why don't we try to do something very limited? Not a lot of, you know, not a lot of time commitment, you know, once a month kind of a thing. And let's actually explore something that we both actually are very passionate about, which is actually children's movies. Indeed. Uh, which maybe is something people know about me, but I've known about you. You are a huge fan of some of my favorite films from... Well, not necessarily specifically my childhood, but films that I've identified with my childhood, and many of which we're going to explore in this very feature. Exactly. Uh, Technically, the only films that I really own are children's movies and Jackie Chan. <laughs> That's okay. my movie collection, like physical DVD collection, children's films, and Jackie Chan. That's wonderful. Shanghai it Moon is, is it? on Netflix, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so... The, the idea for this whole feature was we would explore children's films, and part of the reason why that turned out to be a really good idea for us is that there aren't a lot of children's movie podcasts, as far as I can no, tell. No, oddly. There, there really aren't that many. I mean, there's certainly podcasts that sometimes explore children's movies, but there aren't really you know, dedicated features to children's films. And we thought, well, wouldn't that be a great idea for us to kind of ex do that very thing explore some classic stuff from say 15 years plus ago films that we identified with films that maybe precede us by generations and in doing so you know having a blast and filling what we think is a gap indeed so so today's movie this was your choice although i obviously love this movie as well but today we will be discussing the absolutely classic The Goonies, the 1985 feature, directed by Richard Donner, screenplay, uh, and written by Christopher Chris Columbus, uh, and the story by Steven Spielberg, who also acted as executive producer. Uh, why don't you give us a summary of the film? So The Goonies has really one major plot line, which is that this area known as the Goondocks, from which the, the name the Goonies comes from, is about to be foreclosed on by an essentially an evil businessman who wants to mow it all down and build a, a golf range, essentially, slash country club. Uh, and uh, in an effort of kind of desperation, all these kids of who are about to lose their homes and be separated, best friends their whole lives, decide after finding essentially a treasure map to take one last stab at a grand Goonie adventure. And things go, well, about as you would expect with a grand treasure hunt involving pirate ships and 
well, at least in the deleted scenes, a giant squid monster octopus thing. <laughs> uh, and, of, and of course, underneath this, there's also a, a plot line involving the family of the Fratellis, who are an Italian miniature mob gang who uh, have a penchant for opera and keeping their uh, apparently deformed, mentally handicapped giant brother in the basement. And yeah, that's kind of the major conflicts that occur. You, know, you have two villains, essentially, in the film. You have the villain of the, the evil businessman and, uh, and, well, and his son, uh, who we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about later. Probably. Uh, for certain reasons, uh, that he sucks. And uh, the, the more traditional villain, which is going to be the criminal element, the Fratelli family, uh, which I found really rather comical and amusing at the same time as I found them kind of creepy. <laughs> But, oh, they're they're fantastic. They're some of the best villains I think in children's movie history. Yeah. Oh, and and we should say a, a quick thing f- about this particular episode. We should say this very mu- uh, right at the start uh, that uh, we we're going to try to keep this as clean as possible, so that you know people who want you know are looking for stuff for their kids to listen to maybe about some of their favorite films they could listen to. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, despite the fact that the Goonies does contain curse words, this podcast will not. (laughs) Uh, And there's actually a hilarious moment in which a curse word is spelled out because the young actor uh, promised his mother that he would not swear on camera. Is that Daquan? Yes. Oh, quite. Yeah, yeah. So, there are... That was something, and and I just gotta say, I, I love this film, and I've seen it many times. But watching it for this podcast, I didn't realize how often the S word is actually uttered. Quite a bit, as is the D word. Yeah, it's Uh, not excessive, but it is, when you're paying attention, it's noticeable. Yeah. And that was actually kind of shocking to me, because I've always thought of this as a very innocent children's movie. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And yeah, let's go into our overall impressions, because I think that actually plays into it a little bit for me. Sure. in terms of, I'm slightly skipping ahead, but in terms of the the time period that this was produced and in, in, um, probably filmed in 1984, I would imagine, but uh, released in 1985, um, that was actually fairly common. I don't remember when the um, ratings sort of storm took hold and then we got PG and all that other stuff. We did have PG and everything, but there were fewer restrictions at the time. Um, in terms of swearing, I, I could be totally wrong on that because I remember there were quite a few films that came out about this time that did have kids swearing. There's smoking in the film, not by the children, uh, although that is not unheard of in children's films from the 1980s. Um, it's, it's not, it's not innocent. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such a great movie overall and a great story is that it treats the children, uh, because they are all under the age of 18, both the actors and the characters, um, as human beings, as, uh, human beings with their own uh, fears, um, their own uh, dreams, and it 
takes them seriously. Yeah, I think what you're trying to get at is that it, it's taking a bunch of kids who appear to be in that kind of preteen age, or a little younger in some cases, and in some cases actual teenagers, and treats them as their age. Uh, and, and it kind of dispenses with that myth, this idea that, you know, kids and teenagers and young teens, that they don't curse and they don't, you know, comprehend what's happening in their world. When these kids do, I mean, right from the start, I mean, after we get this beautiful chase scene, we may talk about that later, some of the scenery oh, yeah. and the beauty of the cinematography for the film, which I think borrows a lot from, from Spielberg, uh, and we may get to that as well. Uh, in the, you know, once we get to the kids, you know, the adults are dealing with it in their, in their own way, but we never really see it. It's very off camera, but the kids are dealing with it directly in front of us. I and mean, obviously that's partly because it's a kids movie, so it's going to focus on the kids. But even the kids recognize that the adults are off doing what they need to do for them, them, right? But the kids are having to kind of deal with it themselves and that they're going to take their own kind of chances in dealing with it. Uh, what's happening to them, the foreclosure, the fact that they're all going to lose, you know, their friendship. They're going to be moved across the world. Remember, this is the 1980s. It's not like yeah. they had Skype, right? So we're talking, Or cell phones. Right. We're talking very, like, severe limits. I mean, yeah. these kids, they're... it's their lives are going to drastically sin significantly change and they're they're aware of it and so when they're cursing it's it's not just kids being crude it's kids responding how we would expect kids who know what curse words are which is let's be honest most kids uh doing what they would do in a situation of severe stress as these kids are going through yeah and but i think the distinction here is is to not say that kids that as we would expect them to behave, because there's the whole myth of um, the idyllic childhood that adults um, try to hang on to, um, and I think particularly in certain periods of uh, particularly American history, uh, more so than others in terms of uh, sort of the protection of the, the innocence of children. Um, so we as adults they were there was more of an expectation that they were innocent and the reason that i say that it takes the kids seriously is that this movie is totally shot from their point of view that is this movie is not about the adults the adults are the aggressors um in some cases they are the ones that the kids might be worried about in terms of the parent but they are they're like you said pretty much off screen and the kids are being kids, and like you said, they're reacting exactly as they sh really do act, but not necessarily as adults would expect them to act, particularly at this point in the mid-80s, um, when there was, I think, even more than there is now, uh, the sort of I idyllic view of the childhood as an innocent space. Yeah, and, and, and there's an interesting, you know, if we think about this in terms of the kind of push against what we see in the Goonies because of this, this belief that we need to preserve the innocence of childhood, you know, right. in the way in which our schools are treated. And I don't want to get into a lot of detail with that, but you know, there, there's a clear sense that that battle is, I think in our contemporary time, very much renewed in trying to preserve this, the idyllic child as we imagine them versus 
accepting oh. children for what they really are, which is complicated young human beings. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the sort of the trajectory of parenting in the United States from, I think, one of the greatest things that this film portrays, and the reason that, um, and we'll get into more of how we identify with it later, but that it's easy to identify with it for people my age is because that was childhood. You were unsupervised. You could ride your bikes all over the place. Nobody gave a crap. That That's as much swearing as I'll do on this show. Um, it was expected that you were kicked out the front door the first thing in the morning. Um, interestingly, the main character, pseudo-main character Mikey, um, played by Sean Astin, is probably the most coddled character in the show uh, because he has a- asthma. Uh, and even he is still fairly free. Um, and the children going out into the world and exploring the world was part of the lifestyle of a child in the 80s. That has changed drastically since then, in the past 20... I mean, we just hit the 30th anniversary of the Goonies, which makes me feel very old. Um, <laughs> you and me but, both. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's not the case anymore. Um, even though crime rates have gone down, uh, you know, like, even though in this movie we literally have children encountering murderers... Actual um, criminals. Actual criminals. There was still almost this, like, eh, okay, that actually kind of makes sense, you know? Like, yeah, yeah it's it's going to happen. Yeah, there, there's but a But they're freedom. still going to be okay, because, yeah. you know, they're just exploring their kids. They're exploring the world. Now, uh, never, it could, that, would, that would not fly at all. Right, I mean, certainly in certain parts of the country, you know, I'm sure kids, there may be, if there are kids listening to this who are like, what are you talking about? Like, I get to go outside and do whatever I want. In so much of the country, that's not true. Uh, there there are, I mean, we have this term now for what we call helicopter parents who essentially like, they're like helicopters. They're like always above their kids watching everything they do. Uh, and you know, in some cases there may be very good reasons for that. But in this film, the Goonies is, is all about the kind of freedom that we get. And it's, it's essential, I would argue for the kind of film that it is, that it is, which is, uh, a kind of family children's adventure story. Like yeah. These kids can't be hampered by helicopter parents. They can't no. be hampered by adults. They can't even be hampered by school. These kids are out of school. Yeah, right? it's they're a three-day weekend. They're on a three-day weekend, right? So we have all of that. The limits have been pulled away, right? Uh, and, in, and in some ways, there's even a freeing aspect that they're losing all of their homes, right? Like, what does it matter? Because next week, we're, we're gone. Yeah. We're all going to be at a different place. We're all going to be at a different school. So, like, what's the point in worrying about homework? What's the point of worrying about any of these things? Let's have one grand adventure, and we're going to be free. And we see that, these beautiful scenes where the kids all ride off in their bikes, and they go basically off into the woods. Amazing, yeah. In Astoria, right? Disappearing off into Adventure Time. And Um, Mikey's speech. Mikey's speech, he gives gives a couple speeches. He gets... A couple speeches, but the main one, this is our time. Right, the speech he gives in the well. Yeah. Right. When everyone's about to quit, this is about half. Why about the halfway? Yeah, point about halfway point mm-hmm. between not not necessarily in the film, but in their the adventure in the cave when they they're looking for the treasure, right? Of One-Eyed Willie, they get to this this wishing well, 
And it's, it's actually, it's a really beautiful scene, so we should talk about it, which is, they come to the wishing well, and they, they see all of the, they don't realize it's a wishing well, but they, they see all of the coins, and they think they found the treasure, and turns out, you know, really what they found is a bunch of loose change, and then they have this kind of mini philosophical debate about what these coins represent, which is that they represent the dreams of people who've come in. Yeah. And Mouth, played by Corey Feldman, has this, this moment where he's just, it's, it's, it's actually really heartbreaking. It is. Despite the fact that the character is played very much as kind of a, a, a Joker character who isn't really serious. But in this moment, he's dead serious, even while he's presenting that, that mouth bravado. When he says, right, well, this one was my dream and it didn't come true. And he doesn't explain what that means, but we know what it means. Yeah. It's that he's losing his home. He's losing his friends. He's losing this, this moment. Yep. And then shortly after that, right, they're all about to, to go up uh, to escape via the, uh, the bucket into the well via uh, Troy, the, uh, the son of evil businessman. Son of evil businessman, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Mike gives this beautiful speech. And he says, right, you know, they're all doing their stuff up, uh, up there and they're, they're, the adults are doing their thing, right? And up there, it's their time, right? It's their time up there. But down here, it's our time. And I totally screwed up the line because I can't act at all. But it is a wonderful scene when really our, our hero gives his heroic speech saying we have, to, we have to follow this through to the end because this is the end. And it's beautiful. It is one of the quietest moments in the film, which is something that Richard Donner did uh, have issues with, right, is he's wrangling, you know, was like eight kids or something, you know, of varying ages. <laughs> and, he, he, and he, and he, and you can watch behind the scenes stuff of Richard Donner doing everything he can to kind of wrangle these, these wild children, as it were. Uh, and keep them focused, yeah. Keep them focused. <laughs> and the film is very noisy as a result of that, which on the one hand is, I think for some people, maybe a little difficult. On the other hand is, well, yeah, but they're kids. So it makes sense, but this this scene is, I think, deliberately quiet because it's it's all yeah. of there's the two there's a couple of scenes released. that are deliberately quiet. The first is when they first discover the map in the attic, which is another sort of beautiful scene uh, where you first see the inspiration take hold that that hope, the wide-eyed hope of maybe this could be something, and particularly for Mikey, it's not just about having that last bash, that last Goonie adventure. He genuinely believes there is a way that they can save their home. And whether or not that's completely naive doesn't matter. Um, everybody's caught up into that hope. And I think that's part of the reason that that halfway point at the well when they start feeling like, you know what, this is too dangerous, we, we, we have to stop, there's no chance that this is going to, that anything good is going to come out of it. Uh, with Mouth, you really see that in Mouth giving up by saying, this is my dream and I'm taking it back. That's the moment when you really realize that they've given up. Uh, more so than even the, the chance to get out of the well and, and all of that. That's when they you see the crush of the reality of the situation. So with 
Mikey coming back and saying, no, this is our chance. And they all rally around that. It's just, it's a wonderful moment. It really is a beautiful scene. I have to totally agree with that. But I also, I just love when they first are inspired by the adventure. Yeah, um, they find and that And it has map. this yeah. great music um, accompanying it, which I mentioned to you last night. As I swear it's the same uh, sound bite as in The NeverEnding Story. This sort of mystical, magical moment of 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 dreams of adventure uh right at their fingertip uh and that's really what this film just does a fantastic job of conveying is the inspiration of adventure um and i think we've lost some of that mm. i mean maybe that's just me being an old fuddy-duddy <laughs> um it probably is uh i got to say but it really is so beautifully portrayed in the Goonies from the start. I mean, you the, with the car chase that you mentioned. Even though it's not the kids' adventure, just the fact that it starts with the kids' stories getting woven into the first thing to happen in Astoria in forever. I mean, the, one of them even makes a comment, nothing ever happens in Astoria. Right, and Even Chunk as... makes up stories. And right? Chunk makes up stories. Because exactly. it's such a boring place, at least according uh... to the film. I've never been to Astoria, so no offense to any historians. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and a really significant part, I think, that we missed there is that the chase scene is actually a scene where we're introduced to our, main, our primary cast. Because right? yes. we see the chase scene kind of going through where they're all at. Right? Yes. So we see Data, who is playing with his gadgets, right, and almost gets run over. I mean, he gets almost mis- gets misses run by over, a couple right? feet, but doesn't even realize it, right? He he falls into a trash can. I love this, right? The only one oh, who, yeah. who actually sees the chase in action is Chunk, who is known to tell fibs about <laughs> things happening. Like, he says that Michael Jackson stopped by his house to take a pee. Take a pee, yep. Uh, and, and then, of course, he tells the story of the gremlins, too, which is classic. Right, uh, which, which the police know him. Too. Right, The police says, is this Lawrence? This is just <laughs> like the time when the gremlins came, right? It really is a fascinating introduction to the other characters, because, like, you could probably dig out so much from just those introductions, because look at look at how Mouth is introduced. Mouth is introduced with his blue-collar plumber father, you know, and... and watching the excitement on the television and totally missing it in his own life. Um, and then Data, obviously, with the inventions, which are so wonderful. Um, Kooky, chunk sometimes the, not very effective. <laughs> Kooky, right, exactly. But in the end, they actually do quite a lot to, sell, to help them out. So right, Saves his life, in fact. Saves his lives, saves their lives multiple times. Um, chunk, sitting there with a pizza and... Uh, uh, a milkshake um, which is probably my biggest complaint of this film that it's a little bit uh, sizest in terms of uh, portraying Chunk I mean his name is Chunk and he does the truffle shuffle which granted is like the greatest thing in the world and I totally want to do the truffle shuffle all the time but um, he's the butt of all the jokes um, also not really that unusual for 80s no, not yeah, in the slightest. This kind exactly. of thing doesn't really get a good challenge. I don't even think until the 2000s. 
No. When yeah, it starts that... getting pushed back. And, and really, honestly, that has only really significantly started to change maybe in the last five or six years. Yeah. When larger people are being presented. Like, I mean, Melissa McCarthy is the most obvious example in adult film where she's a big lady. Yep. Doesn't matter. She's hilarious. I, I think you still see some issues with that in children's films now. You still but do. It's it's yeah. getting a little bit. It's a little bit better. I'm not going to say that it it's fixed. Absolutely yeah. Although not. I will say that you know, th- so there there is some sexism in the film, which we should address in a moment here. Yes. Um, after we finish talking about the opening chase scene, uh, there's some obvious overt sexism here. I mean, it's really obvious. Yeah. Um, there but is. But it's it's also. Some of it, at least, is nicely tackled. Yes, it's addressed uh, to a degree. Um, we'll, we'll get into that, but we'll get to that. Um, there's, there is obviously a little bit of, of body shaming with Chunk. Uh, there are these issues. However, the thing that I really found fascinating was that the, the brother relationship between Josh Brolin's character oh, and Sean so Astin's character wonderful. Was, was not what we... I'm so used to seeing in film, which is yeah. just an older brother being mean to his younger brother and then maybe at the end, like, giving him a hug and being nice to him. It's weird science. This, it's, yeah, it, it's this, it's this, yeah, weird science. is like, yeah, that's the perfect The example. classic example right. of mean older brother, yeah. But in this case, it's, you know, he, he, he rags on him a little bit here and there, right? It's kind of normal big brother teasing, but there's, like, a there are so many scenes of tender love there which i think is really interesting given that the character is super macho right yeah the very t- first time we even meet him he's lifting weights right he's d- exercising and and is very obviously you know interested in his physical not maybe appearance but certainly his physical uh health i guess uh, or ability <laughs> no, or strength. i would say that he's probably sort of well he's trying to get girls fairly typical yeah you know, image-obsessed teenager. Sure, but there, there are great moments where, you know, he hugs his younger brother who is, he knows is having a harder time dealing with what's happening than maybe he's letting on. And I love that tenderness because I feel like so often that gets left out. I agree. Um, it is one of the, uh, the relationships between all the characters are really, I mean, seeing the camaraderie between the Goonies themselves, um, they do a fairly good job of accepting the the two um, girls in the movie, um, Steph and Andy. Although obviously that's where some of the sexism comes into play. Sure. Um, but I love Steph regardless, um, and Andy's adorable. So um, she is adorable. <laughs> she's just. And there's another character that like you have certain expectations about her. Um, from the beginning of the film in her introduction, um, Andy's sort of the, the stereotypical girly girl, the cheerleader. Steph is kind of your stereotypical tomboy. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out her introduction in that first chase scene, uh, where she's diving for crabs or something. I don't even know. I think it's just trying to convey that kind of tomboyish nature like exactly. she's just she's bobbing for apples but for crabs for, for crabs some but reason <laughs> her best friend is the cheerleader you know and so it sort of breaks some of the boundaries that you get in a lot of um films about this particular age group of you know in terms of the cliques that tend yeah. to form 
Um, and basically, it's it's like the Goonies know no boundaries. You know, it's like the Goon Docks know no boundaries. It is a working class neighborhood, presumably. Yeah, it seems. And firmly middle class. Exactly. Um, and that's what binds them together, uh, just as much as anything. Um, is their sort of similar situation in life. So it doesn't matter what you know type of person you are, you're still going to be accepted if if what you're fighting for is is you know is the right side of things, which right. is against the evil corporation. And yeah, well, in this case, it's the <laughs> evil country club. Of, the evil country club of mean people basically exactly um, and, and i do think it's really significant that uh our character andy is not actually a goondock resident she's not a goonie that's she true identif- she says specifically right at that that the scene at the wish i'm not a goonie not but it's it's clear that that's what she becomes that the, the yeah. idea of a goonie identity is about what you just said right fighting for what is right, right? Doing the right thing, fighting for, you know, camaraderie, friendship, uh, those kinds of values is what makes one a goonie and what clearly separates them, like her, from, say, someone like Troy, who is essentially a character who just wants to take things that don't belong to him. Uh, and, and maybe we should take a moment to talk about that, uh, even though I really still want to talk about the opening chase scene, which I think I is just know, gorgeous. I know, but we could we could spend an hour just on the opening chase scene because it it's, really is. It's it's a wonderful chase scene. I love the music. Yeah. The music is just so delightful. Oh, fantastic! Oh my goodness! Yeah, yep. I, everybody just go watch the first five minutes of the movie. It I is mean, really seriously. something. Yeah. If you don't watch anything else, it really honestly is one of the best chase scenes ever. It is. It's wonderful. Uh, but in any case, so we should talk about Troy. So uh, the character of Troy, played by uh, Steve Anton, is the son of our, our Mr. Perkins, played by Curtis F. Hansen. Uh, he, and essentially, the first time we really get an introduction to him is in his convertible car, driving out essentially in the middle of nowhere with Andy and Steph. and essentially tweaking the, the, the rear view mirror so that he can look basically up her skirt. And she catches on to it, and that's basically her introduction to him. And what becomes clear later at the Wishing Well when we see him is, you know, he's interested in the thing we kind of typically come expect of teenage boys in high school, right? Like he wants to get in her pants, those kinds of things. I mean, it's not as crudely stated. They kind of use language like get with her, which I think adults will figure out. Maybe younger kids won't quite understand. Um, but it, it, it's very clear that, you know, his interest is not in her, it's in what he can take. And that's the same attitude that he gets from his father. Yeah. Right. His father is exactly that kind of thing. I mean, at the very end of the film, he basically accosts the father, right? The, uh, the father of Mikey and, uh, his, his brother Brand just basically tells him like, you just got to get over it and you got to sign these papers and I'm going to take all your stuff. And tough, you know, suck it up. And there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. Nothing at all. And that attitude permeates the 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 sort of the film as this kind of backdrop thematic of, uh, you know, the Goonies fighting against people who want to take control. Yeah, and don't deserve it. There seems to be sort of an underlying um, 
threat that it's not just Mr. Perkins, who is presumably a, a developer of some sort, um, owns half the town type of guy, but that, you know, that the bank is complicit in what is happening to the goondocks as well. Um, there's this idea that all of the homes are getting foreclosed on, which should not be possible, um, except I'm trying to recall sort of the, the economy of the mid-1980s. Um, and if that was something that was a common threat in terms of, you know, how were working class families doing at that point in time? Were they falling behind on their payment? Um, and did banks use that as an excuse to sweep up pieces of property? And I would say that that's probably, I would not be surprised if that was something that was a relatively common occurrence to become part of the sort of the, the movie lexicon of, of, of the, the movie narratives of the time. Um, because it's definitely there that, you know, these, it's not just one family that's facing this threat. It's multiple families. Yeah. It's an entire group of people. And it's a whole neighborhood. By extension, it's, yeah. it's an entire neighborhood. By extension, it's almost as if the town is in some ways under threat by, you know, development. And, you know, it's this sort of quintessential, beautiful little town. Uh, I would love to visit it. Um, <laughs> And and it's definitely under threat, and there's these characters that are absolutely willing to take away everything from, well, you know, Troy and his father. They're just, they are, they're willing to take. And then you have them as the sort of the implied threat, not, I shouldn't even say implied, it's a very explicit threat, but It's not, an active threat. It's a threat it's that... It's not an active, right. right. It's, it's, it's not a physical threat, so therefore there it's, yeah. Yeah. right? And then to portray that in a more, and this is part of the reason I love the Fratellis, the Fratellis are really the physical manifestation of the threat that is facing the Goondocks, right? Um, they're the ones that are there to to act as, as the sort of stand-ins for the Banks and Mr. Perkins and these characters that are not obviously going to be chasing them down and, and murdering them literally, um, but sort of metaphorically, that's what's happening to their lives. And they print money, for instance, which directly sort of puts them into the economy that the per Mr. Perkins is, is involved in. Um, you know, it's not like they're actually printing money for Mr. Perkins, but it's the same. That's that's who they are. They are the manifestation of the threat. There's a symbolic linkage between them. Exactly. Yeah. And it's hilarious that they're portrayed as absolute buffoons <laughs> throughout the rest of the right, film. Despite the opening scene when we have a fairly clever fake suicide absolutely yeah and 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 yeah no the escape is is very well orchestrated um for the most part there is there is a slight flub in terms of getting into the car setting up the uh, hilarious sort of sibling rivalry between um what are the two characters names uh 
Jake and Francis. Right, going to the more traditional big brother, little brother relationship of very abusive relationships. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, in which one is always right, one's always wrong, and who knows which one is which. Well, the mom. Um, and which one, <laughs> except for mom, and which one does she want to, which one does she love more? Um, and the constant well, fight over that. It's uh, clearly not sloth. <laughs> exactly. Or sloth. I, really, like these two, Jake and Francis and, and Mama Fratelli, they're, they're great. They're great sort of slapstick characters. Um, yeah. And literally slapstick, as Mama Fratelli loves slapping the boys. Um, yeah, she smacks her, her older son many times. Many, many times. And, and we should say this is uh, Mama Fratelli is portrayed by Anne Ramsey, who is the amazing actress uh, that some of you may remember from Don't Throw Mama from the Train. Um, she is hilarious, comedic genius. Um, and then you have Joey Pantaleone um, and Robert Davi. And I love, and Robert Davi is a classically trained um, uh, uh, opera singer. So he and gets he to sing through. And he in sings Italian. In, in Italian, and it's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> it is wonderful. All, yeah. it's, Although it's, it, it is interesting, because if I recall from uh, a documentary I watched years ago, uh, uh, Leone, oh gosh, I just messed that name up so bad. Sorry. Pantaleano. Thank you. Uh, Joe Pantaleano. Joey Pant. Joey Pant, thank you. And Robert Davi apparently did not actually get along. Oh, that's hilarious. As as people. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and, and they still don't, as, as I recall from the, the thing. And it's not that they, like, hate each other. It's that, like, I think that in the interview they said something to the effect of, you know, it's it's just a matter of like personalities that do not mix. Do not and, mix, right? You know, they can work together, but they're never gonna be friends. <laughs> they're never gonna be friends, and that's exactly what happens on screen. It's classic. It's it does bleed through, I think, in the oh, film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh. So yeah. So we've got these great, great villainous characters, the kind of subdued villains. We've got the real villains in the 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 Fratelli family. Uh, right. And then we have Sloth. Who we haven't Sloth. mentioned at all yet, but uh, we who, haven't. Who we're is, saving him for last? Uh, we were saving him for last, but we got to talk about it before we run out of time. Uh, Sloth, or as his real name is, is Lotney Fratelli, played Lotney by John Matuzak. Matuzak. I, I can't recall how you say it. His he's known as John Daniel Tuz. I think Matuzak. it's Matuzak. Yeah, who was an American football defensive end in the yeah, NFL. Yeah, Raiders, baby! He was on the Raiders, and you can tell how buck fool is, because uh, he it ripped. He is a very big man, but interestingly, and this is sort of a production note aside, um, he actually he started acting and because he had retired from football due to injuries. Um, and a lot of the uh, lifting and, uh, you know, the sort of, I am... There's a reason that he basically is just a large physical presence without actually acting much on that physicality, um, because he couldn't. I mean, it it he was in a great deal of pain yeah, uh, and after this is, scenes this is that a involved him time. picking him up. So yeah, and and this is for those that maybe don't know, uh, there was a period of time in the NFL where the regulations about how football players' physical bodies were treated 
were not the standards that we get now, where there are more clear limits on what you're allowed to do, which is why injuries now seem like a much bigger deal because in the old days, and I have, I've known this because I've, I've met a few Oakland Raiders in my day in school where they would come and do talks who have said things to the effect of doctors basically saying, oh, we'll just shoot you up with some drugs so that you don't yeah. feel it, you, you can keep playing. And the result of that is, of course, very serious injury. Um, versus now, when when a when a player gets injured, if he's got back spasms or he's you know yeah. breaks you know he he sprains like his leg or his leg bends somewhere weird, they take him off the field and they get the X-rays ASAP. And they actually do something about it. Yeah. None of which has anything to do with the film. I just no, but I think it's very that important that that you know like there's a context who, who for this that. actor yeah. is. Yeah, and he is sloth is sloth is. One of the most iconic characters from 1980s films, I would say. Hey, you guys! Everybody Sorry. knows that line. <laughs> know. Everybody knows the, the, the baby Ruth scene. Um, he is so beloved, which I think is really wonderful given his disfigurement and his... Um, clear mental you know, handicap. Clear yeah. mental handicap. Um, you know, and and there's it's implied that Mama Fratelli dropped him a few times. Not implied. Just, she says she, she says, says she dropped once him or twice. twice. Yeah. Towards the end. At, Maybe more. Know, yeah. Um, and it, which is awful. Um, it is awful. She's um, a terrible, terrible mother. She's the worst mother. But the product is sloth, and sloth is just this a genuinely good person. And I think that's part of the reason I love the relationship between Chunk and Sloth. You have. And it's really kind of fascinating that they actually split this into two, essentially two um, trajectories, um, two parallel paths in this movie. Um, you have the path of uh, the bulk of the Goonies, and then you have the path of Chunk and Sloth um, as they follow. So you have first in the front, you have the, the bulk of the Goonies, uh, Mikey, Brand, Chunk, uh, Mouth. Um, Data, Steph, and Andy. Behind them, coming behind them, you have the Fratellis. And behind them, you have Chunk and Sloth. And Chunk is, you know, he's portrayed as the bumbling idiot. Sloth is the big sort of bumbling idiot. But in the end, the two of them are really the ones that save the day. Well, and it's, it's really significant that, you know, this film actually gives them both a character arc. Yeah. Sloth doesn't even say much. No, he has he has maybe ten lines that aren't quite sentences. Yes, right in the whole film, and yet what we see in Sloth's development is he begins as a monstrous creature that everyone's afraid of, and yet of course Mikey does push the plate of food to him. Yeah, Chunk does try to give him a baby Ruth. Right, we we see all of this kindness being shown at him, and then that's when his kindness comes out. But we learn right that he. That uh, Sloth is interested in Errol Flynn movies. He's interested in that yeah. adventure time. And then we see him actually become the character that he's shown on screen, right? He actually yep. goes in, he flies in, and he, you know... I think the film is Captain Blood, if I remember correctly. And he becomes Captain Blood. I mean, he gets to be the pirate, and but the good pirate that's saving the day. Right. And and there's that moment where he rips his shirt off, and it's Superman. And it's Superman. And all he does is he, he gestures at it, right? He's like, oh... You know, like, look <laughs> at me, I am Superman. And they, and I love the Fratelli brothers both stop and they go, we're in deep trouble now. 
Yep. Right? And they've lost they've lost the plot, as it were. And he's and so the one that it. chooses that you know tells mom that he that you have to be punished. You've been bad. You have to be punished. Um, which is fantastic that he's the one that gets he gets to take ownership of his life. Just as the Goonies are there going, you know what? We've taken ownership of, of our path, and we tried. At least we can say we tried, and we, we had it. Um, but it's Chuck a wonderful moment. also has a, a character development. Because as you recall, we mentioned this earlier, Chunk is known as a liar. He, yep. You know, he makes up big lies of stories, things like Michael Jackson showing to take a pee. Uh, and every, and uh, and this is really important because everybody assumes that the story he told about the the jeep, right, running yeah, through was a lie. Uh, uh, it, uh, yeah, it was all a lie, right? That he saw this big old thing, and yet it is in the scene with the Fratellis that he is forced to tell the truth for every imagined <laughs> he, crime. He, he tells committed. everything. He tells everything, and yet yes. in, as a result, he is vindicated as a character in a way. Yeah, and him and Sloth become. This this team, right? This team that works together. You know, one man's the muscle, the other is, well, cute, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel well, like they are what they are. Chunk yeah. <laughs> is portrayed very early on as being totally bumbling idiot, but there is a very endearing quality to him, and I think we see much of what makes Chunk such an integral part of that team by the time oh, we get absolutely. to the end. That it's yeah. not just that he's a bumbling idiot and he's entertainment. That he no. is, he's he has a heart of gold. Yeah, and that heart, you know, leads him to to take sloth. I mean, that the moment when he says, "Sloth, you're gonna come live with me. I'm gonna take care of you." I know. And and it's like I'm sure love, his parents were really happy too. Yeah, I'm sure they're very happy. <laughs> but it's not even a question that's asked. He doesn't, just takes nope, ownership of the matter. situation. He says, "Sloth, I you're love you. You're coming home with me, and you're coming home with me." And I yeah. love that scene so much. And you can see it's Slot's face, right? This this somewhat faulty anima, you know, kind of animatronic face with the wiggling oh, ears. Still lovely. It's it's a little funny looking, doesn't quite hold up, but is you see the joy, right? That you know, yep. he's his family is all going to prison, but he's gonna have Chunk, right? He's gonna have yeah, basically and a the, brother that who moment loves when they him. all protect him. Yes, the entire band of Goonies protects Sloth from the police. And, and that's what the Goonies have done from the start, yeah. right? They band together to fight for what's right. Yep. I love that so much. That theme throughout the film is about that fight for the rightness of things. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it really is. Uh, there's a reason it's a classic. There really is, and um, you know we don't. There's we don't lots have... of reasons that it's a classic, really, but sure. Uh, yeah. You know, I think it really just perfectly encapsulates the wonder and wonderfulness of childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And and so we don't have a whole lot of time left and there's a lot we could talk about. Oh, um, so, so many things. I do just want to say that uh the cinematography for the film is you know, with the exception of some kind of weird blue screeny stuff, which is just, it, it's clearly understandable very Understandable for the 1980s, yeah, Sure, exactly. very understandable for the period, but obviously dated. Yes. Uh, but the cinematography is phenomenal, and the sets, right, they actually oh, built a life-size they, replica of the ship. I know. Uh, that, which is amazing. Like, the... And you know why, right? 
uh, because that's the most awesome thing to do ever? No, it, it was actually something that uh, Richard Donner... Uh, so, so as I mentioned earlier, right, Richard Donner had a lot of difficulty working with so many children. It's not that he hated working with kids. He enjoyed it very much, but it was, you know, it's an enormous challenge. You're working with a bunch of, you know, right. but who are essentially they're not professional actors, right? They're young kids who are kids. And right. he had a hell of a time. But one of the strategies he used to get realistic performances was actually to create sets that felt as real as the script required. Right, so it wasn't uh, just real for us sense. watching; yeah. it was real for the kids. So things like creating the pirate ship and then not even revealing it to them until they got to set, until so they got they would to have set. the wonder of seeing that ship for the first time. Which seriously, that would have been amazing as a child. I it's, mean, amazing. It's a. I mean, it, obviously, I can't. One of the things I read is that beautiful. nobody wanted that ship after the production, so they had to take it apart. And I was like, "What is wrong with you people?" I want that I in my backyard. It's um, gorgeous. But the set, yeah, and then there's set another, is amazing. His direction is really just, it's its so well done. I mean, it, not just given the challenge of working with kids, but period. Um, one of my favorite scenes is when Mikey first tells the story of, of One-Eyed Willie, which is full of just, I mean, it's like totally stereotypical children relying relaying a story that his father told him and apparently richard donner got that effect by telling mikey the story or sean astin rather told him the story directly before that scene and said okay now tell the story what did i just tell you it was completely ad-lib that's incredible incredible and it is one of the most powerful tellings of a story. It is a great storytelling moment. It is something that Donner, uh, you know, when he did work with kids, was exceptional at. Oh, yeah. I mean, he knew how to work with kids. And, and you know, this is, this is not exactly the, the, the period of great child actors, you know, the, in, the, in the sense that we come to expect now, like what we think of like, like the Haley, actor's Osmond, actor. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The actor's actor who's a kid. Right, this is a period like we're dealing with amateurs, like just kids showing up on set, you know, who have no very limited acting experience, and yet he was able to get so many performances. And this film feels more real. The dialogue feels oh, real. It's yeah, it's stuttered in places. Right, the kids don't speak perfect lines. No, right? and as you mentioned, it is loud. They're talking over each other constantly. There's which is actually ranting, one of the things that I love. There's ranting. Stuff. Oh my god, Data's babbling. Right, when and, he's and talking about nobody respects my inventions, and I and I put all my heart into those things, and oh, it's fantastic. He's ranting, and half of it you can't even tell what he's can't saying. even hear. Yeah, but it's it's just the <laughs> act, right? He's just he's saying words, and I'm sure in his head he is saying things that make total sense to him. And the and the the camera is focused on him the whole time, so you know it's important. Like it's really important, and you can hear enough of it to get the gist of why he's so frustrated and he's scared. And he's tired, and it's such a great kid moment. Like that sort of breakdown of, you know what? I'm sick of this. And then <laughs> he comes back and he totally saves the day with his crazy inventions. And, <laughs> it's Data, uh, of course. It's Data. Data is amazing. Uh, God, they're all amazing. It's just, it, it really is a wonderful movie. 
It but is. I wanted to ask what you thought right before we finish this out. How do you think, because we talked about this being a, a segment in our show, how do you think modern audiences, kids our age that would have been, you know, about seven years old when they first saw the film, now, how do you think it holds up for a modern audience? So, I think in a lot of respects, it holds up really, really well. It's got a lot of wonderful values, which I think really kids would identify with really well, um, because they're things that kids understand, right? That, you know, adults doing stuff and kids kind of getting saddled with the burden of change. Um, there's some puberty stuff that's here for kids who are kind of, you know, I mean, most of the kids here are like right at the cusp of hitting like proper puberty, right? At least they're intended to be that age. There's those kinds of those those themes, and I think the adventure is a lot of fun. It's sort of, in a lot of respects, like Indiana Jones for kids, right? In a lot, a lot of portions. There's so many booby traps. Oh, um, the Rube Goldberg machines are just... Wonderful, yeah. So I, I think it actually holds up really well, I think, for a contemporary audience. Um, that said... I think where it falls short and where some contemporary audiences are going to have an issue is that some of the effects that are used are very obviously dated. I mean, the green screen or blue screen stuff, uh, there are some oh, scenes yeah. where it is so obvious that the, their color matches are just not there. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how but attentive I've... younger student, younger people are to that, but I feel like in some cases it's a little bit obvious. And I do wonder if the the loudness would not fit well with contemporary kids. It is audiences. it's messy sound editing, and I think but intentionally. In, uh, so. Intentionally, absolutely. Um, and and I think I, I think you're right to an extent that that modern audiences are are used to a much crisper sort of um, uh, sound. Uh, well, we're all spoiled by um, THX, essentially. But, um, yeah, I've been kind of thinking about this because I, I, <laughs> my kids have seen this multiple times now, and they both have enjoyed it tremendously. But I don't think, and maybe it's just our lifestyle or, or I, I don't even know what. I don't think it has inspired quite the sense of adventure that it does in me. And that's probably true for some people, where they're going to watch The Goonies and going to be like, dude, seriously, that was... Okay, yeah, it's an adventure, but... I mean, it, it, there was a water slide in that. And that, that water slide was super obvious as a water slide. Yeah. Which, by the way, they apparently played with after production. Of course they which did. Which is awesome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you have a water slide, use it. Duh. They're but, kids. <laughs> um, I th certain films that I have shown them from my childhood have played with them much better than the Goonies. Um, not sure why. And it could very well just be that I have two girls, and I think this was one of the things that even alienated me to an extent um, when I first saw the movie is that Steph and Andy, they're not the best 
they're not the worst female characters in the history of female characters. Um, they each, actually not, they don't each get a moment. Um, but Andy at least gets a moment where she gets to be the one that saves the day. Um, and, which is wonderful. But I didn't really identify with Andy because I wasn't a cheerleading girly girl. If anybody, I would have identified with Steph, who is not given as much, even as much agency as Andy. Um, she's just kind of a tag-along for most of the movie. And I think my girls get in a little bit of that sort of distance from it. Um, but at the same time, it really does... It holds up well for me, watching it 38 years in. It still inspires that same sense of wonder and adventure. Uh, that I got when I was seven years old and saw this movie for the first time. And I can't believe that at least some of that sense of wonder and adventure is still going to hit a kid who is only now seven years old. Um, And some of it did hit my kids, just not to the extent that I think... um, even but my memory of that sense of wonder i think i have more of a sense of wonder now watching it than i even did when i was seven there's some of that i think i would agree yeah so and i think because i have just more of an awareness of what's going on in the movie um i don't think i really got you know i wouldn't have gotten the whole the banks taking their home thing i wouldn't have cared about that i paid more attention to the the there's pirates and there's bad guys and that was all I cared about. Somehow knowing the extra stuff, like being cognizant of it and conscious yeah. of it, uh, makes it even greater of an adventure. Yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree. So um, so I, I did want to mention two things before we close out. Because sure I haven't thing. gotten to mention them. And they uh, one is a pet peeve in film. And okay. one is a thing that we actually didn't address, which I, I found a little problematic. Um, Go. And I hate to start out, end on a negative, but such as No, life. it's okay. I think it's totally acceptable. So, one, uh, the asthma treatment in the film. Yes. So, while he does have asthma and he does wheeze at various points in the film, he, he does not use the inhaler correctly. Nope. <laughs> and uh, that drives me nuts because I'm an asthmatic. And I have had that drilled into my head so many times. Right. And it's in, you know, some of it's forgiven because it's, it's kids. And, you know, if, if Sean Astin doesn't have asthma, it may be a little unfair to expect him to be perfect in his asthma inhaler use. That said, this is a common trait of asthma treated as like you just take a, take a quick puff and you just blow out and you're good to go. And it's like, no, you yeah. have to hold the medicine in your damn lungs. I cut yeah. again, sorry. Five, four, three, two, one. You have to hold the medicine in your darn your lungs. Um, and th- that's the first thing. The other thing is that, you know, th- this film does sort of push against the sexism a little bit, which we mentioned earlier. However, there is that moment which I was really bothered by where Andy is kind of having a, a, a kind of a, a psychological break when they're in the, the, mm, the yeah. corridor with the rocks. And what she's mumbling 
while she's having the break is essentially like, yeah. oh, it wouldn't have been a big deal if he had looked down my shirt. No big deal if, if Troy had looked down. I should have just let that. That's not a big deal. I have a nice body. Yep. Don't I, Brand? Don't I have a nice body? And yep. you know, Brand is like, he doesn't know what to do. So, of course, his response is, of course yeah. you have a nice body. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's very awkward, you know, because what he's doing, he's trying to calm uh, her down. I love how bad Brand is with girls. He is really bad with girls, Awful. but yet he, he does get the girl. <laughs> he still gets the girl, but He's so awkward. It's it's hilarious and perfect. Yeah. But yeah, no, that was a that was a super problematic moment. I mean, like they had tackled it by showing that Andy had taken ownership of herself and left Troy, not because he had thrown Brand off a cliff, but because but because Troy was being sexist and verging on sexual harassment i mean totally sexual harassment not purging incredibly inappropriate incredibly inappropriate yeah and she leaves because of that and she and that's a great moment but she falls straight back into the sort of weak willed female the second that things start going awry and that's a major problem it is. I mean, it's nice that she she is a little bit redeemed when she gets her music scene later. Yes, exactly. Um, and of course, but we should end, also mention. I mean, like as we've mentioned before, it's not the best portrayal of people with disabilities. It is not the sure. best portrayal of of people who have weight issues. Uh, it is definitely not a particularly perfect portrayal of Asian characters. Um, it's the stereotypical Asian smart kid. Um, granted. He's not stereotypical, though. He uh, is very smart. But, you know, what we, we don't expect this smart Asian kid who uh, whose inventions don't always work out. We don't expect mad scientist, you know, kind of, you know, Dexter's Lab Asian kid, right? What but we expect it's still is him not to be good the best. Math, which I hate it, is the stereotype right. that derived from, but that is. It, it's right? not it, a perfect portrayal, though. It's, it's better sure. than a lot, but it's not perfect. Definitely not a perfect portrayal of, you know, the non-English speaking Rosalita. Um, True. Who is the stereotypical Mexican maid. Um, you know, but all of that said, I, I I think that's actually what dates this movie more than anything. Yeah, I, I think that that is probably pretty true. It's stuff that we notice more now, I think, because we're more conscious of it. I don't know how much kids are going to be conscious of that, but certainly adults will. And that's something I think, you know, since this, we're doing this segment kind of for, you know, adults who have kids and for people who just like kids movies. That's something real that I think you're going to have to just be aware of. I mean, it's not like yeah. it's not extreme. I mean, we're not no, talking about, you know, jingoistic orientalist oh, racism. No, we're no, no, talking no, 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 no. About you know, really, I mean, it's, there is some racism. We're talking some about fairly very... typical 1980s uh, stereotyping. Of... It's stereotyping, I think, it is the best way to yeah. talk about it. So, um, but in any case, so we're, we're a little bit over time, so we got to definitely close this bad boy out. So Definitely. Um, I don't know where our next film is going to be just yet, uh, but we will announce it on the blog at totally uh, It better be the never-ending story or I'm going to kick your butt. Okay, so violence is the beginning of the next movie. Um, <laughs> so we will do the never-ending story next episode. So uh, if you want to watch along, uh, we'll put up 
a blog post up about it so you can kind of find uh, ways to watch it online. Or if you don't own it, you should just buy it. You really should. It's on Blu-ray. And the book. And the book. The book's also one wonderful by Mike, Michael Ende. Michael Ende, yep. Yep. So on that note, uh, you know, Jen, we did it. We did it. Thanks for joining us, everyone. All right. Bye.